The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines, oil prices rise for a second day as the Trump administration blames Iran for tanker attacks in the Gulf of Oman, while Tehran itself denies those claims. No economic sanctions entitle the Islamic Republic to attack innocent civilians, disrupt global oil markets, and engage in nuclear blackmail. The Wall Street rally returns as U.S. stocks snap a two-day losing streak, while Asia trades mixed ahead of more Hong Kong protests planned for this weekend. Eurozone finance ministers meeting in Luxembourg with one message for Italy, respect the bloc's fiscal rules. I think it would be wise from the Italian government to seize the hand given by the European Commission and to take the appropriate measures to fix the issue. Uh, magnificent? I don't know, but there were seven left anyway. Boris Johnson comfortably winning the first round of voting in the race to succeed Theresa May as leader of the British Conservative Party, eliminating three rivals in the process. Meantime, one of President Trump's most loyal aides, Sarah Sanders, announces she will stand down as White House Press Secretary at the end of the month. Really good morning to you all, everybody. Uh, the rally resumed after a couple of stuttering sessions uh, for some of these indices. What was interesting is um, this time yesterday morning, everyone was talking about how the oil price was down and out. Incidentally, we've got Johannes Benini, who is an OPEC watcher, a seasoned OPEC watcher out of Vienna, joining us later on the show to talk about OPEC as well and talking about how OPEC had lost control of the market. Well, actually, it was one of the catalysts for the rally that we saw in these indices. Uh, four tenths of 1% higher for the Dow. The S&P up four tenths of 1% as well. Should we have a look at the energy stocks, which also rallied uh, on the concerns of what happened off the coast of between Iran and Oman as well, with a couple of tankers uh, seemingly, and I say seemingly because we do not have the details yet, seemingly attacked by a third party of which people are blaming an unnamed state actor. So the US energy stocks all saw uh, a bit of relief after the drubbing they'd had in the previous week or so. Uh, Philips 66, one of the stocks, 2.4% to the good. Hess Group, 2.8% higher as well. I should add as well, though, consumer discretionaries were one of the lead sector as well, including the likes of Amazon. You know that sector now. 2% higher. 10 out of 11 sectors were higher. Staples. Consumer staples. How many sessions do you think they've rallied? Yeah, you knew that, didn't you? Nine out of nine sessions they've rallied. That is the longest win streak since 2010. Wow. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Think about what the staples are. Think about the pressures on raw materials. Think about the pressures on costs. Think about if you're stuck in the middle between the farmers who are having it tough at the moment uh, and indeed the uh, supermarkets who are having it tough because of the online competition and consumer staples are surging. Is that telling us anything? I don't know. We'll ask that question to our guests. Let's have a look at the Asian indices again. Again, politics. 
Politics, politics, politics have been affecting this market, especially the Hang Seng down 145 points. Shanghai Composite down 0.3%. ASX 200 up uh, a tenth of a percent uh, in the session so far. Quick look at the opening calls as well for you for European markets. Uh, we're called slightly high at the start of trading. But one thing uh, I will say is the data week has been fascinating as well. Underwhelming data in many ways as well. Yesterday, we had the jobless claim slightly higher. Today, have a look at three key pieces of data, University of Michigan sentiment as well, industrial production, and I think the big data that you're all looking at today will be retail sales. Let us move on before we get to a chat around the desk because the US has blamed Iran uh, for attacks on two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman. US Central Command has released footage it says shows an Iranian patrol boat removing an unexploded mine from one of the vessels. Tehran has categorically denied the accusations. Quick look at the oil price before we get to our experts in the region as well. Uh, oil price currently trading uh, 61.68. So not a huge rally actually net net from where we were at our lows. So let's get to Hadley now who joins us from Fujera, which of course back in May was the epicenter of previous accusations, sadly, uh, against state actors. Can I ask you a question, which I think is very important for those who are trying to look at this in the round. Given the fact that uh, Mr. Abe uh, had a, such an important meeting with Mr. Rouhani and the leadership uh, with Iran as well, what would be in the interest of Iran to have been behind this as well? There's a lot of accusations and a little bit of nudge, nudge. Oh, yeah, we all know it's Iran. But why would Iran have done this? It just doesn't seem logical, given what they're trying to do on a, on a, on a broader basis, Hadley. Good morning to you. Good morning, Steve. And you're absolutely right. To the rest of us, it doesn't seem logical at all that Iran would pull this, particularly at such a sensitive time uh, in the talks with the United States, uh, when there weren't really any talks to speak of, as you know, when at a time when they don't really have a counterpart in the United States for any of the back channel that we know goes on in these diplomatic negotiations. But I think it's really, really interesting to note, I had many, many conversations over the month that I was traveling in the United States, in Washington in particular, speaking to U.S. officials uh, quietly who were saying to me a lot of different things, one of which was, you know, at this point, both sides, it seems, are very, very loath uh, to come out and attack each other directly. You know, the United States, as well as the Gulf Arab countries, knew very early on that the four tankers that were attacked a month ago were attacked uh, by Iran or its proxy. They knew that very, very early on, but it took days, even a week, for them to really come out and say it. And they even had a muted response when they finally did come out and say something. The Gulf Arabs weren't willing uh, to go out there and look like they were warmongering. And at the same time, the United States said, hey, it's your area of the world. You need to say it. And then we're going to say it. So apparently it took about 48 hours of back-channeling diplomacy just among the United States and its allies to actually say something at that time. So I think it's incredibly significant that they're coming out just less than 24 hours after these incidents took place. Really strong from the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo as well, of course, from the president. Let's listen in to what Mike Pompeo had to say yesterday. This assessment is based on intelligence, the weapons used, the level of expertise needed to execute the operation, recent similar Iranian attacks on shipping, and the fact that no proxy group operating in the area has the resources and proficiency to act with such a high degree of sophistication. This is only the latest in a series of attacks instigated by the Islamic Republic of Iran and its surrogates against American and allied interests. 
So Mike Pompeo, they're talking about the kind of intelligence that they have gathered, talking about the level of proficiency and the high level of proficiency needed to take um, to, to do the attacks that, that we've seen. I thought that was really interesting that he pointed that out. He was saying this is just the latest in a long line. And to answer your question a little bit more broadly, so many folks have been saying, you know, what is the what's the upside for Tehran when they do this? People who study this, the geopolitics folks, take a step back and say, hey, listen, this is all part of what we continuously see from Tehran. Uh, this is something whereby you have to look at Iran's general playbook for the region. They have to look strong at home. They have to continue to posture and seem uh, strong, at least, to the Gulf Arab states that you know, essentially have, have said that they're the greatest uh, threat to the region, the greatest threat to stability across the Middle East. They have to continue to posture there. So essentially what we've seen over the last 24 hours coming from Iran is no surprise to the folks that I've been speaking to, whether they be in Washington or here. But whether or not it actually plays to their interests is a bigger question. But at the end of the day, they said, of course, they're going to come out and deny that they did this. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't. I think it's also really interesting and significant to note how far we've come in just a few hours. I mean, this time yesterday, all we really knew is that two tankers had made distress calls that the U.S. Navy, the fifth fleet based in Bahrain, had responded to those distress calls. We knew that there were satellite images uh, showing uh, fires and flames uh, engulfing that these tankers. Just to set the scene for you, it's over 100 degrees where I am standing. I'm here in Fujairah. As you say, it's one of seven Arabs, uh, Emirates of the United Arab Emirates. We're 70 miles away from where these incidents took place in the Gulf of Oman. That's near, of course, the Strait of Hormuz. One of the big questions that has continued to circulate uh, amongst folks here on the region and also those who very much study the oil markets has been whether or not the Strait of Hormuz uh, could potentially be closed. Could they become under attack? Again and again, folks have said that doesn't work in Iran's interest. They need to get the barrels of oil that they've got on tankers out of here already. Already, they need to hit that magic number of 500,000 barrels per day to keep their economy ticking over. But at the same point, the folks that I speak to who are involved in these military operations on the U.S. side said, hey, listen, we train for this all the time, and it's the minds that we're worried about. Now, in terms of what's happened over the last few hours that I can kind of update you on on these two ships and where they are today, what we understand so far is that the Front Altair, they're now and still claiming that there was some kind of an attack that they claim was a torpedo attack. And then when we talk about the Japanese ship, which was the Kokoko Courageous, we now know that they're towing the ship into a port that's just down the beach a few minutes behind me. We drove past this port, the Karfukan port, when we drove in yesterday. Took about two hours to get here from Dubai. We had to go over mountains to Fajr. I mean, this is a rather remote location. Um, but they know now that they're going to be uh, bringing that into port. So hopefully we'll continue to hear a few more details, at least in the coming hours, about what exactly happened uh, to that ship. So expecting more details as the day goes on today. But as you say, it didn't take long for that sort of tit-for-tat battle between Tehran and Washington to start taking place. Guys. Hadley, thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, let's move on. Uh, we'll get back out to Hadley a little bit later on. Hopefully she'll take some cover from that heat. Over 600 U.S. companies have co-signed a letter urging President Trump to resolve the trade war with China. The companies, including Walmart and Target, said tariffs are hurting American businesses and consumers. The warning is part of the national campaign, Tariffs Hurt the Heartland, which has already sent many letters to the Trump administration and comes ahead of a possible meeting between President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping at the G20 meeting later this month. We're going to squeeze in a break. We'll be right back. Boris Johnson sealing a first round win in the Conservative Party leadership race. Find out who's out next. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more.
Back to the game of musical chairs that is British politics at the moment. Chaka Amuna has joined Britain's Liberal Democrats. He joined another Apparently, party last week, he? did. <laughs> the one that he was meant to be forming. He party. Yes, How he did. How many parties has he been a member of this year? Well, he's probably been now few, three, isn't it? isn't it? This is the third. <laughs> the former Labour MP recently quit the main opposition party to set up the anti-Brexit Change UK group. No. However, last week he quit that party following a poor showing in the European elections. Amuna said he was, quote, wrong to think millions of politically homeless people wanted a new option on the ballot paper. No, hang on. So he was, let's get this right, he was a member of the Labour Party, yeah, and then he was a member of TIGS, the independent group, then they became a new party called Change UK, Yes. and now he's with the Liberal Democrats. Yes, but if it's the same party that's just changed its name, yeah. does that count as a new party? Because it was all the same people. Well, were they a party to begin with? They were a, a movement before they became a party. Okay, you can call so he was partyless like, for a little bit, wasn't he? But with, there's yes. four different institutions that have had his name in in the last political year, yeah? Right. Oof. Meanwhile, over at the Conservative Party. Let's talk about personal ambition a little bit further, because yeah, we'll switch that. it over to the Tory party now. Is it about Brexit or is it about political ambition? I think you're right, it's the latter, isn't it? <laughs> Boris Johnson has sealed a commanding first-round win in this race to succeed Theresa May as the leader of the British Conservative Party. And the former Foreign Secretary received 114 votes, while nearest rival Jeremy Hunt secured 43. Andrea Leadsom, Esther McVeigh and Mark Harper are all out, so we can scratch them off the, the list of uh, those candidates that are running for the top job. But as you can see, a number remain. So let's get out to Willem for more from Westminster. Willem, what's been interesting for the market has been pricing around the chance of a hard Brexit if it is a Boris Johnson win. Just talk us through what happens from here. Well, this was a pretty commanding victory for Mr. Johnson. He got about 30 more votes from lawmakers than many had expected, although it turns out, according to both the BBC and The Spectator magazine here in the UK, that he got exactly the number of MPs to vote for him as his team had secretly predicted. This was a secret ballot, so there were a lot of people that seemingly voted for him that hadn't publicly endorsed him. It meant he ended up with more than a third of all votes on offer amongst the Conservative Parliamentary Party, and it means that he's well ahead of his rivals. Now, as you might expect, those rivals have come out and said he's running scared. He doesn't want to participate in TV debates, potentially, that take place on Sunday and then Tuesday on two of the domestic broadcasters here. And going into next Tuesday, that's where we'll see a second round of votes. There's around 30 fresh MPs available to try and be mopped up by some of these remaining candidates because of the elimination of those three you just mentioned, Karen. And so going into next week, we expect many of these candidates to stay around. They have until lunchtime today to let the executive body of the party know if they do intend to drop out. The criticism of Mr. Johnson makes a lot of sense from their perspective, of course, because as front runner, they can use his divisive reputation within the party to try and win over some of those new votes available to them. And as front-runner, he has all to lose, which may be one of the reasons critics are saying he doesn't want to submit himself to media scrutiny and give one-on-one -on -one interviews. He doesn't want to appear on TV debates because this is a man who is notorious for shooting from the hip during public appearances. And there's a concern amongst his team that if he does that at the wrong moment, we could see this lead fall back slightly. Benham. Um, this is interesting because you and I have uh, followed this, you know, in a minutiae for a long while as well now. 
The parliamentary party, yes, gave him a strong endorsement yesterday, but the other couple of hundred MPs who didn't vote for him are pretty much implacably against him, it seems at the moment as well. Will there be an effort from the more dovish, more Remainer end of the party to find a champion to go up against him? I.e., will they be able to get behind one candidate or, or will actually that just dissolve because of these, these rivalries in the different factions in the Conservative Party? Well, the Guardian newspaper here in the UK, Steve, has been reporting after the vote yesterday that some of the opponents that uh, Mr Johnson had in fact been meeting together to talk about the possibility of somehow working together. Those that got, you know, around 20 to 30 votes, if they were to team up, that would give them a much better chance of getting close to his, at the moment, very commanding lead. There's no confirmation publicly from any of these candidates that that will happen. But of course, it depends on their individual egos, their individual ambitions, whether they're prepared to put that possibility of a victory ahead of their own personal ambition. And, and going into next week, you know, clearly it's not just the bookmakers now that believe he's going to win. A huge number of MPs have backed him. As I said, 30 more than people expected. But as you point out quite rightly, there are still a couple of hundred who have not been prepared to vote for him so far, who are willing to publicly criticise him and simply do not think he's suitable to become the next Prime Minister. One thing we do know for certain, though, that because of Esther McVeigh and Andrea Leadsom's elimination, the next Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland will be a man. Yeah, and who'd have thought Lorraine Kelly had so much power still to destroy Esther McVeigh? That was quite humorous uh, for those of us watching Britain. But one more question for you. Karen uh, and I were talking about this Comrades poll yesterday in The Telegraph. Um, there are huge questions about the Comrades poll in The Telegraph as well. But cut a long story short for our international viewers, it said the Tories could have a potential landslide if Boris Johnson was the Prime Minister as well. Simple question. So you, Does anybody you, else if, think if that's listen, got credibility? If you listen to some of the polling experts out there, some of the political scientists at various UK universities, their criticism of that poll is not so much the fieldwork, it's the framing, the methodology behind it. When you have a man like Boris Johnson, who's been so central to British politics over the last 15 years, his name recognition means that when you frame questions leading into a poll like that, you have to take a lot of the responses with a pinch of salt. A lot of the positions of the other candidates are not yet publicly known, whereas in a few weeks' time, in theory, after more scrutiny, more public debates, more hustings, people will understand what their positions are, especially when it comes to Brexit. And that really is going to be the position that a lot of our audience, investors, business owners are going to be very focused on, is what are these men prepared to do now as next Prime Minister when it comes to dealing with the European Union, when it comes to the possibility of crashing out of the EU without a deal at the end of October. And that is something that people right now don't necessarily understand well enough, especially amongst the Conservative membership, the 150,000 odd people around the country that will have a chance to vote on the final two candidates. Right now, Boris Johnson, as front runner, as the most high profile person running in this race, has an obvious advantage when it comes to those polls. So a lot of the experts, if you read their analysis over the last 24 hours of that Comrades poll you point to, say that quite a lot of the findings should be discounted. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for that, Willem. Uh, yeah, so many interesting things. And the Lorraine Kelly reference for our viewers. Uh, if you're international, have a look at it. It's quite funny. Uh, that's all. Um, right. Uh, Five-year chart of sterling. Karen, you and I have talked about the pound. Yes. Uh, and one could say, yes, 
unambiguously is at the bottom of the trading range because there are concerns that currently, there we go. Uh, there are concerns about uh, hard Brexit, October 31st, and the language being used by the likes of Mr. Raab mm. and Mr. Johnson specifically. But, but, anything I'll say is, it's behaving rather well, I would suggest, because 130 we we've all decided, I think it's fair to say, is the anchor. When nice. you think when you think things are going well, we're going to get a, a, a decent Brexit, I, from the European point of view, a nice, easy transition. It goes to 133. 130 being the anchor, we're only three cents lower. Can I beg to differ? Because yes. I've been watching just the last couple of weeks and you've seen the reaction to the Fed and the States to the dollar. And that's been the first time you've seen the dollar come off some of the high levels and actually move south. There's been quite a distinct shift in the dollar in a short-term window. What you have seen has been a response in the euro. You've seen a response in the Canadian dollar, for instance. You've not seen much of a response in sterling. So I think with a, such a, a significant short term move in the dollar, you should have seen some response. And I wonder whether that just goes to the undercurrent in sterling that there is real risk of attention now around the chance of a Brexit, what 50-50 chance of a hard Brexit taking place. And I would think that you would have got a, a better bump bumper than sterling. The other interesting part is that despite the fact um, there has been you know quite a lot of market activity on the stock market these days, you actually have seen the market respond with the FTSE. So they've not really decided to park UK assets over there and not touch them all together. The FTSE has moved a little bit to the upside, um, the 7,400 mark. Just looking at the behaviour of the FTSE for last week, it effectively traded pretty much in line with every other European market. And it traded more risk or less on. in line. Yeah, it was all mm. risk on. They were all up about two and a bit percent. Yes. But the, to me, that suggests that actually the Brexit story is fading out a little bit at the moment as a driver of movement for UK assets. I understand the underlying issue as to what this race potentially means for a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit. But of more importance to me this morning is the fact that Morgan Stanley are now talking about a June gloom performance for markets and the risk that Geoffrey Gunlack and others are now heightening around the prospects of um, some kind of recession within the next six months or so. So you know, as much as I think it's important to look at the pound and the FTSE in the context of what's going on with this leadership race, we will have a leader. We will stumble towards that Brexit exit, despite, you know, people like uh, John Major uh, overnight getting on the tape and saying it is stupid to assume that any of these leaders can come up with a plan that changes the direction of travel before we get to that exit date. But it just seems to me that the point that Steve made at the top of the show about there are some critical bits of economic data that are due out today, not least the Chinese industrial production, which will probably be, you know, in terms of the read across, will probably be seen as more important for giving us some near term direction on the market. But isolation, what you talk about, because if we have an exit, no, say, you've, you've in October. You've got to wait them, don't you? You've no, got but... to wait them in your mind and say, which is more important to me if I'm going to take a position, risk on at the moment? No, I, I think do I both. believe that the FTSE is going to do okay? in spite of what happens in the Tory leadership disagree, race. I think, I think both battles are important because, say, there is a, a hard Brexit come October. A lot of the commentary we're talking about is whether we go into or see a recession downturn in the next six months. If there is a hard exit in October, a couple months later, if you look at some of the gloom situations, we could be facing a global downturn just a couple of months later. So if Brexit 
could potentially deliver some uncertainty and lower growth numbers that would be lower than what you're going to see globally. So you might see an exacerbated feeling across the economy in the UK. You may see less of an impact if the world economy is still growing much stronger. You may not feel the impact as much because, you know, all growth floats all boats in some sense. This one feeds into, I guess, what the Brexiteers might be saying. Is there any evidence that the British economy has underperformed uh, its peers because of Brexit? Is there? I believe there is, if you look at the numbers. I believe if you look at fixed asset investment into the Eurozone compared to into the UK, you look at capital flows, you look at the performance of underlying indices as well. I'm not sure that that's the case, Karen. We've got uh, a squeeze in a break. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, they always say the jobless or the employment number is a rearview mirror number. But actually, every time we get a data Britons point, we just get more and more Britons in employment, which somewhat runs against the narrative that we heard from the Bank of England and for George Osborne two years ago. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.